0: And welcome to the Plan a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim.
1: And I'm Hal Roster. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture.
0: The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planning and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits.
2: So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us.
0: We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. We'll be receiving our new Monheim Microphones soon, and we're very excited. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence, monheimmicrophones.com. This podcast is being recorded on November 11th, 2022. Sir Tim Smith studied archaeology and anthropology at Durham University. This began a lifelong passion for regeneration and putting his passion and energy into his work. He has followed his occupations, embracing his many interests from archaeology through music to wreck diving, rare breed animal husbandry, and building restoration. In 1990, he discovered and then restored. The Lost Gardens of Heligan, with John Nelson, and remains a director. Heligan is now one of the UK's best love gardens, having been named Garden of the Year by BBC Countryfile Awards in March of 2018. Kim's book, The Lost Gardens of Heligan, won Book of the Year in 1997. Today, Tim is executive chair and co-founder of the multi-award-winning Eden Project in Cornwall. Since its opening in 2001, over 23 million people have come to see a once sterile pit turned into a cradle of life. Eden contains world-class horticulture and startling architecture symbolic of the human endeavor and our dependence, an unbreakable part in the systems of the natural world. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. Tim, we're delighted you could be with us. Hello. I was impressed when I met you way back when at the Rotary and talking about the Eden Project. And I went there with a friend in 2001 while I was still studying at the University of Reading. And of course, Tony was my instructor. Yeah. And I didn't know how integrated all of your systems were there. And I made contact with him and had him on the podcast. And he was really a delight to have on and spoke very highly of your new endeavor. So that's how I wanted to reconnect with you because what you're doing is above and beyond anything that's going on really globally for restoration of really bad sites.
2: Yes. We certainly are quite often in the public eye. However, there are lots of people doing marvellous work all over the world. The truth is that we have all been brought up, I'm not unique in this, in an educational system which has, for the last 50 years, tended to silo the world up into bite-sized chunks of studyable things, which are then deemed to be separate which is enabling a lot of people to become experts in the outside wing of a fruit bat, but not necessarily understanding the notion of batness or bat and the ecology around it and so on. But nonetheless, I think I would bet that it is true that we are all coming back to a view that maybe our instincts told us about, that the world is just a series of systems. And the problem of deconstructing systems is that that way, it's a bit like building a dual carriageway around a city. You just move it to the next traffic jam, and that actually to get systems to work well requires a much more um, not only transparent view of it, but to understand a number of things. One of which is that in a world that is simplistic, people always think, they think let's have the circular economy. No, we don't want to circulate bad things, you know. And people say, isn't it great to do ESG? And you go. If you really genuinely believe that everybody doing less bad is a good thing, well, then it is. But actually, my view is that less bad on top of less bad still equals bad. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. But I've come to the view, as has the Eden Project as a collective. I'll tell you something unbelievably simple happened to us. I did a podcast with uh, Sadhguru. Do you know who I mean by Sadhguru? I've, I've heard Sad of Sadhguru. Yeah.
0: Sad Guru, yeah.
2: yeah. I did this podcast with him and George Mombio, and Sadhguru told me the following story. He said, I have been involved in the planting of trees on 10 million small farms and I persuaded my friend, Mr. Modi, to sponsor this and also to allow a system that the trees uh, could be cut down after 15 years and the farmer could get a revenue from cutting down the tree, as well as a license fee for having the trees all that time. Now, when he cut them down, or she cut them down, uh, they would also get a grant to replant the trees. He said, I did not do this simply because I love trees. I did this because the biggest threat facing humankind at the moment is farmers leaving the land for the city. And if they leave the land for the city, the cities will suddenly drown And he said, if you liberal white people who live in England think that seeing a thousand people a day coming over in rubber boats is scary, try watching 30 million people at one time. He said, that is what will happen. He said, so we plant trees in order to protect the soil, but mainly to keep farmers on the land. He then said, I've just been to 87 countries and met the heads of state of those countries and said, do you think you could work with me to make every farm in your country put between 3 and 5% of more vegetative material in the soil? That's all I want, just that. Because if we can do that, all over the world, we'll be making a contribution to global safety going forward and certainly for future generations. And they all agreed. And he said, but we must just do this one thing, just one thing, If you say two things or three things, it just won't happen. Anyway, George Monbiot then said, yes, Sad, I I really agree with this. He said, we'll do that. And then we need to look at the impact of certain types of regenerative farming. And then we need to do this. And Sad Guru got up and he said, George, 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 stop, 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 stop. He said, when you look in the mirror in the morning, what do you see? Do you see a man who wants the whole world to think that he is someone who wants to change the world? Or are you someone who's going to change the world? I would venture it is the second. He said, because if you understand human nature, you would know that to get everybody in the world to make their farmland 3 to 5% more vegetatively rich is a concept that they could all perhaps agree to. The moment you say there must be an element of regenerative farming, you've lost
0: 50%. The moment you then make the
2: third condition, you've lost another 50%. And before the end of the day, with all of your liberal approaches to we must do this, then this, then this, then this, you'll be back down to 5% of people doing between 3 and 5% of increased fertility. He said, it's a simple proposition, and you Westerners always get it wrong. Anyway, I thought about this, and George did too, and he actually he got up and he put his hands up and he said, I actually think you're right. He said, I've never thought about it like that, but I think you're right. Now, if the three of us got up in front, and I've done this, I did it last week. Let's imagine there are 600 people in front of you, and you say, is there anybody in this room that does not believe that we have a duty, a duty to keep the water of our rivers and lakes and our planet clean for generations to come, to come, to come, to come. You will find nobody disagrees with that concept. It's not a right-wing concept, it's not a left-wing concept, it's just a humane statement of the Commonwealth. Now, it's really strange. When you then move on to, do you think we should have the same attitude to having clean air so that we don't choke future lungs to death? Everybody goes, we agree with you. So that's two out of three. This is going well, isn't it? Do you agree that it would be a moral, dutiful thing for us to make sure that we understand that all the land that we farm and steward should be returned to the Commonwealth in a better place than it was before. Everybody agrees with you. You go, crikey, let's try it forward. Um, Does everybody in this room agree that with our knowledge of science, it would be best for future generations if we encouraged the health of all the other living things that are on the planet with us. Because even just on a precautionary principle, it would seem odd that these things had evolved out of some random purpose. Therefore, they must be there for some purpose or role or system. And they're beautiful and wonderful and share the planet with us. Does everybody agree that that's a really good thing? Perhaps a stout party. Everybody goes yes. So on the five most important things we can imagine, there's no politics. It is just about protecting the common wheel. How is it then that if we can get almost unanimous belief in those things, that we have allowed ourselves to develop and nurture a business system in which for some reason to become a member of that club called business person, we're expected to forgive the bad behaviors of people who are actually being treasonous to the future. And we've allowed that to become a class warfare where as opposed to being left-wing or right-wing, we say you're just having a war on the, common, the Commonwealth. You should not be respected as a business person, nor yet should you be respected as a citizen. You are betraying us all.
0: That's amazing, that's amazing. I, I love the way you put that. And what we want to find out is how did you come up with the idea of the Eden Project. And I sat next to you at a Rotary meeting and heard you talk about the Eden Project. And that was back in 2000, 2001. And I I wanted to find out how the whole idea came up.
2: Okay. The true answer of how I came up with the Eden Project is odd. I was in the music business. I was disenchanted. I was on holiday in Cornwall. It rained. I walked into an estate agent to shelter from the rain. I saw an advertisement for a house in the middle of nowhere. The estate agent told me I wouldn't be interested in it, which enraged me, so I took it out of his hands. The following day, it rained again. I decided to go in my car on a desultory journey towards this house, and I drove up a lane At the end of which the house was nestled into the hillside near a place called Goran. As I nearly got to the house, a tractor pulled across my way and a man got out. He was pouring with rain and I wound down my window. And the man said to me, What are you doing here, old buck? And I told him in embarrassment that I was trying to see a farmhouse at the end of the lane. He says, It happens to be mine. Come and have a cup of tea. And two and a half hours later, I'd bought a house in the middle of nowhere that was 280 miles away from where my profession was based in London. And I decided that at that age, I was going to just decant myself to Cornwall and run my life by fate. And the fortune I'd made in the music industry, I spent on restoring this house, which was the equivalent of a money pit, and uh, that I needed to find something to do. And just at the moment that I, I ought to say that my original training before I was in the music industry was in archaeology and anthropology. And one day, a guy I'd recently met pulled up with a white van and a trailer behind it. And he came into the house and he said, look, um, he said, I notice you've got a garage and you haven't got a car to go in it. In my trailer, there is a big black pig that I'm taking to the abattoir, but I really like the pig. And I was just thinking that if you could keep the pig as a pet and look after it, then I wouldn't have to take it to the abattoir. I was rather taken with this notion of a big black pig, so I took the pig, and he was called Horace. And Horace came to live with me. The first problem I had was that he didn't like the garage and decided that it was an outrage that I decided to say goodbye to him and then go in through the back door into my farm. And he felt it was his right to lift up the whole fence and then lift up the back door to my house and break into my house. He was very strong. And come and warm his bottom against our Argo, our oil-fired heating system, And there he sat. And Doris and I, well, we got to know each other over the next three days. We got to know each other. And and I then realized that his major problem in life was that he was single. So I put in an advertisement uh, in the the local paper. And rather astonishingly, very nearby, there was a black lady pig, what became Doris. We we called her Doris, uh, fell hopelessly in love together. And So began a tremendous adventure, because from that moment on, Horace, first of all, didn't want to break into my farmhouse anymore because he was quite happy with Doris. And then in the November of 1989, Doris, under sick hay and a heat lamp, at 2 a.m. in the morning with horizontal snow, gave birth to 11 baby black piglets. And these piglets were just adorable. And I decided that my future was going to be bound up in looking after baby piglets or something like that. So I thought I'd get a site. I'd find a site for a rare breed farm. And amazingly, there was some land very close by to me, which was perfect. It was flat. It was right by the main road. And I found out who owned it. And I fixed up to meet him a few days later.
0: And I went in. And
2: unfortunately, he gave me a very hot cup of coffee. And he told me instantly afterwards that I couldn't have the land that I'd come to talk to him about. But I had to stand there for a while drinking the coffee, or else it would have been rude to just put it down and walk out. Anyway, he asked me in small talk what it was that I was interested in in life, and I told him, well, we're air breeds, but I'm also an archaeologist, and he uttered the immortal words, I have need of an archaeologist. I had never heard those words ever before. And he then told me this extraordinary story, that he had inherited a large estate on which where we were sitting at that particular moment was part of it, But he said, I've got very little money, so I can't restore it. And over there, next to where we're currently sitting, you'll see some very big trees. That is actually a a place that was once a very famous garden. And I'm going to go in there for the first time tomorrow. No one's been in there since about 1915. So I found myself, to my astonishment, accepting an invitation to go in with the owner into this this, this once famous garden. And we cut our way in uh, the following morning with machetes. And the brambles and the ivy were 15 foot high, if not higher in places. And there were lots of trees at drunken angles because in the January of 1990, there had been a hurricane in Cornwall, which had blown over an awful lot of trees. Anyway, I cut my way through, cut my way through and eventually came to a big brick wall. And in the middle of that brick wall was a classic green door, you know, with the paint peeling and the rust seeping down from the hinges and it was slightly ajar and I've yet to meet anybody who wouldn't wish to open that door. It was presented as the ultimate of seduction. So I did. I opened the door and inside it was full of brambles, but to the right hand side of me, I could see glinting in the ivy and the brambles, the remains of a very, very long vinery, a glass house for vines, where the wood had rotted out long ago the glass, like a guillotine, was hanging in the, the, the brambles for the whole length of it, glinting in the sunlight. And I cut my way, as you can imagine, very gingerly into this glass house. And it was very interesting because like those annoying paintings of the early 1980s with lots of dots, you know, with a poster. And if you had an eye for it, you could see an elephant or a warship. I never saw anything except dots. I had no talent for that. But I suddenly saw terracotta pots and my eyes suddenly started to see the essence of terracotta potness. And then I saw tools and then once I'd caught tool in my eye, I could see them everywhere. And it was like someone had said, it's tea time and everybody just gone expecting to come back, but they never did. And I fell hopelessly in love with this place immediately. And I decided that I wanted to make my life's work the restoration of this garden. The estate was called Heligan, and I shook hands with the owner on a most unusual deal which had its roots more in the music industry than in any land transaction, which was, I said, look, I've got no money now, but what I can do is I I think I'm the best marketing man you've ever met, and I will make this a great success. But for it to be a success, you need to give me a long lease on an estate for one pound. No money must change hands, and the lease will be that I will pay to you 20% of all the ticket money I will eventually get when we open it to the public. And he laughed and he said, well, I've got no other use for it. So we shook hands. And then the show began. And uh, the show involved me realizing a great truth, which is that marketing is everything. So I persuaded the BBC to come and do a documentary. I told them that I had found one of the great, great lost gardens. And I called it the Lost Gardens of Heligan to get them tempted. I told them the story of melancholy and um, a, and a tremendous mystery like A Sleeping Beauty because at that time, I didn't know the great story that lay behind Heligan. I I was just talking about mystery and romance at that point. The BBC were persuaded and they came to do a documentary. And while they were doing the documentary, I was doing an archaeological excavation in one of the buildings in uh, the smallest of the world, Gardens, and I was on my knees taking fallen slates out of the guts of the building. And the sun broke out. This is a February. And it hit the old plasterwork. You know, there's no roof anymore. It hit the old plasterwork at exactly the right angle to pick up the lead markings of pencil marks in the plaster. So I got a magnifying glass from home and I brought it back and I, I tried to make it out. And there was a phrase, someone had written, come ye not here to sleep nor to slumber. And then there was a whole bunch of signatures. And then when you got to the bottom of the signatures, it was dated August 1914. And it was dated just before the outbreak of the First World War. And what I was excavating, it turned out, was a thunderbox room, the toilet, and that the, the garden staff would have sat there to do their ablutions. And each one of them had signed their name in pencil underneath the other as a joke, you know, as a memorial. I would have thought not much more of it had it not been that within a very short period of time, my partner in the excavation and, and the restoration, John Nelson, and I went to the nearby village of St. Hugh. And in St. Hugh, there's a beautiful pub. And just across from the pub is the village church with a rather spectacular war memorial just as you go through the gate. And we went out to the pub and we went for a smoke and walked up to the war memorial and to our astonishment, three of the names of the people who had been uh, on the list on the wall that we'd seen the pencil markings of, their names were on the war memorial, which was our complete moment of epiphany. We then decided to break up our afternoon and we drove to uh, uh, two other local villages, one Goron itself, which was three mile distant, and then we went south to a village, the port of Mevigissie, which is the port which you can look out over from the gardens. And in each case, we looked at the war memorials and found yet more names of people on the list. And it turned—it would eventually turn out that more than three quarters of the 22 gardeners who were working at Heligan had perished on the fields of Flanders in World War I. So this was an incredibly powerful story. Uh, and John and I were very moved by this. And we asked what it in fact, turned out to be a brilliant question, which is how many of these extraordinary gardens, working gardens, because I was excavating the vegetable gardens, the market garden, the wall garden, how many of these are open to the public in Britain? Because we've got the institution in Britain called the National Trust, which has protected lots and lots of buildings. And so I did a bit of research and discovered to my astonishment there was not one single garden in Britain, not one open to the public that showed the genius of the ordinary working men and women who made these gardens great. Wherever you went, it was the story of of blue bloods. And so the story began in our head. We said, geez, we're going to restore this garden and create all the working garden. It's going to be the whole opera so that people will come here and understand that the industrial revolution, as it was evidenced by these great gardens, was a place of great genius, which it was. Because as we restored the gardens, we realized A, that the technology for a lot of this productive market gardening had disappeared. And then we realized why, which was that the companies that used to make the equipment that would make the drills, the drillers, and the sewers and whatever, had all been taken over by armaments companies in the First World War. And of course, it was more profitable to make things that kill people rather than feed people. So all these companies had disappeared. So we started to get a really big collection of equipment that we were finding around the site. And then we started looking for seeds to realize that um, big agriculture had done for an awful lot of the seeds that we might be looking for. There was a number of uh, heritage places, most notable of which was called the Henry Doubleday Research Association, the HDRA, which had a large collection, a large-ish collection of what you might call heritage or heirloom seeds. But it was by no means fulsome. So when we got old seed books and catalogs from libraries and we bought quite a few at auction and things, we realized that the world had really shrunk in terms of the gene bank that was made available to us. We then realized something else that was really interesting, which was that the people who were saving a lot of the stuff that was difficult were people who'd formed associations in the early 1900s, the allotment societies and what have you. So, for example, if you go to the north of Britain, there is what's called the rhubarb triangle between Wakefield, Huddersfield, and Bradford. Now, of course, when you mention this to an urban person, they always giggle and think that you're a bit like Monty Python when you talk about the rhubarb society. But these guys had protected 17 varieties of rhubarb, and they gave us all 17 for our vegetable gardens, by which time we... At this point, we had probably about 30 volunteers, we were working at a pace which was unbelievable because everybody falls in love with something like this because it was a big project. And it was so big that the big institutions had said it was far too expensive for them to even think about doing. The National Trust and the Royal Horticultural uh, Society, they'd all had a chance to do something, but they said, no, it's too far gone. No one can do anything, which was partially caused by the fact that they didn't show their public, or uh, ordinary working people did anyway. So we didn't have a stately home to show. We just had these amazing productive gardens. So we went going and we decided that we were going to pretend it was 1870 and we put it back to that period in terms of its husbandry and the way we preserved the soil and so on. So we got the fertility up. We started harvesting seaweed from the high tide mark, the local beaches. We got pebbles from some nearby beaches which belonged to the National Trust, and they said we would be prosecuted if we stole them. So we had to learn how to drive a tractor in neutral and roll it down a hill to a beach where we would have a big trailer which was covered in sacking so no one could hear the clink, clink, clink as we threw the cobbles into the back. We went to auctions. We went to unbelievable amount of auctions to buy things, we went to a church auction and when everybody bought the pews and whatever to sell to middle class people in London, my partner, he said, "Yeah, well, we're not here for that. We're here for the timber. And they said, but it's not for sale. You said everything must go. So before you knew it, we spent a hundred pounds buying the entire contents of the Stallon Methodist Chapel, including all the beams, all the planks. And that was sufficient wood to restore all our working buildings and to shape into the glass houses and everything for a hundred pounds but it was a it was a bit like huckleberry finn we had to persuade everybody we knew who had a truck to come over that weekend and help us take this place to bits before they realized how much value they'd let us buy for 100 quid we even took the the castan framing for the drains because we knew that that would be good in some of the glass houses anyway the tv documentary came out, and it would win Documentary of the Year in Britain. It was it won all the awards. And my book, which is about this two years of restoration, became Book of the Year in Britain. You know, not to boast, but it sold over a million copies. So Heligan's quite famous, and it's very romantic. But it's the story of the lost generation that is so powerful. And it's been really interesting for us, because the journey it's taken us on has been To start with, restoring something to a period, getting all the collection of things together, pioneering a lot of methods. I pioneered using metal detectors in the flower beds, which enabled us to find all the original lead and zinc plant name labels, which if you wash them off with hot soapy water and then put olive oil onto it, the Indian ink reacts so strongly you can read very clearly what was written. So in our walled gardens, every tree that's against the wall is exactly The same tree that was there when the gardens fell to sleep. It's been great fun, and it's been absolutely terrific having enthusiasts from all over the country come and give us stuff. Just giving—they love the pirate spirit, you know. As I said before, the Huckleberry Finn type approach to it. And if you were to ask me, my proudest moment—it was that that so far we've had more than four hundred people have their ashes scattered there. Just people love there. People fall in love. People propose. People try to get married, and we make it difficult for you to get married. But people come there; it's very moving. It can reduce you to tears. People come there when they know they're dying for their last meal and things. So I should add that Heligan is an anagram of healing. Have around four hundred thousand visitors a year. We opened by accident because the BBC forgot. They did it a perfect documentary in every respect, bar one. They forgot to mention that we weren't yet open to the public. So the very next day coaches started turning up in a an area which was not fit for vehicles, but it was crazy. In our first year without really being open, we had forty thousand visitors. But we discovered a great business model because people would come in and they'd see you working and they'd say, Crikey, you know, um, what's up there? you say, No idea, but here's a machete, why don't you go and find out? So people were paying to come in and then doing the work as well, which was marvelous. But it means that a lot of people who became friends of the gardens in the early days remain friends to this day because it became part of their story. At the time that I began at Halligan, I could tell you only one thing about plants, which is that generally it's green side up. That's all. I really didn't know anything else. Obviously, I fell in love with the whole story, but I fell in love with the human story, I fell in love with the fact that we were on a stage which had hosted lives for hundreds of years. And in fact, this garden has been built on a place which has been inhabited probably for several thousands of years. And it's the same, I know, in, 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 in your country. You will find that under many of the houses, especially the rural houses and farmsteads, when you do archaeology, you realize there's some some sense of rightness to the location it means that people who just gravitated to that place to make their lives. Yeah, so we, we opened, it was uh, very successful, and we learned an awful lot because I didn't know about plants. The horticultural director I was working with would get furious with me as I got him to dumb down and then dumb down and then dumb down. And he thought I was taking piss, But I wasn't. I really didn't know what he was talking about. So I'd ask him, why do leaves curl? You know, and After five different explanations, he suddenly said, for God's sake, man, trees, plants sweat. They sweat, all right? They sweat, and they sweat. They're calibrated to sweat to the moisture of the air outside, which means that if it's a really hot day and the leaf doesn't curl, they will desiccate themselves to death. They need to curl to capture air inside the curl so that they only sweat to the moisture level of the air inside the curl. I went, bloody hell, that's clever. And I went to my first dinner party, and I said to someone, do you know why leaves curl?" And I explained it to them. I said, wow, that is amazing. And I suddenly realized I had revealed the truth, which is that loving plants is like joining a Freemasonry, that everybody uses a language, whether it be Latin or the, the science of taxonomy to explain things. But actually, if you're a job, like I am, and you explain it as if it was for a comic, you can then involve everybody. And they go, well, wow, that is amazing. You know, when you tell people, why are there so many damn purple rhododendrons? And you go, because they're damn they those purple rhododendrons. They've persuaded humans that they're helpful. And the truth is that the great, if, if you go to Heligan, we've got a huge collection of what are called species rhododendron. And when they were brought in from Nepal, Sikkim, Ladakh, all that sort of area of, the um, Himalaya, they found that they couldn't propagate them in, in Europe, and they discovered to their astonishment that they could propagate them by doing what's called grafting, and they would graft with the famous Pontic rhododendron, rhododendron ponticum, which comes rather unusually from the middle of the Pontic Alps in the middle of Turkey. But what no one realised was that that damn Pontic rhododendron was unique. It had, I think, it's called allelolization that's the word. I, yeah, but you see, I knew we should have done this podcast. So um, so what actually happened was that no one noticed these purple rhododendrons taking over. It was like the invasion of the body snatchers because they were in the ground with these species and they were just slowly going up. And then suddenly before you knew it, it was an epidemic. They'd taken over the world. They have the ability, as you, with that lifelong word, you just use to put off every other plant uh, from growing there. So like the... Portuguese laurel they have the ability to actually sterilize a huge amount of land without anybody knowing it's happening until suddenly they notice.
0: alleopathic.
2: There you are.
0: alleopathic or alleopathicism. A lot of plants have it. It's a chemical within the root system that poisons everything around yeah. them so that nothing can grow but themselves. Yeah.
2: There we are. The whole point of our podcast has now been reached. We manage. It's like one of those strange questions where you promise on your life to get a word that no one has heard of into your dinner conversation. You yeah.
0: there's quite a number of plants like that. But you know, the story about um, Heligan is fascinating. I've been to Heligan and I have the book. I had to buy the book when I was when I was in the. I've been to the UK quite a number of times and lived there for a year. But in 1996, I went with two other horticulturalists, and it was a whirlwind. Tour around the whole place. And I went to Heligan, um, I guess it was in 2000 to visit. And I was impressed because I remember the area that I was in, and there was this beautiful, I'm not sure if it was terracotta or brick, but this beautiful brick work that was inlaid in the ground. And they were uncovering it at that time. There was some, I remember the rhododendrons in particular, that they were just unbelievable. Yeah.
2: I know exactly where you were. <laughs> You were you were at the crossroads of the main path by the Italian garden.
0: Yes, it was an Italian yes. garden. Yes, yeah.
2: yes, yes. Yeah. You see, I can place you there. I can place you there. So that was a. It's a this is a terribly unfair answer to a question. Tell me about the Eden Project, and I probably used up the entire podcast. And I haven't even got there. I haven't got there yet. Um, but it, it was really important because of what has subsequently happened in terms of the importance of horticulture. Two things have happened. The first is that Heligan taught me something, which was that uh, in its heyday, it was completely self-dependent. It was, it, uh, it was completely resilient. The only thing it imported was lime, limestone, to burn for fertilizing the soil. Later, they would come to import anthracite for the big boilers. But the joke was that they believed, because upcountry people were using boilers to heat glasshouses. They were just aping their upcountry betters because in Cornwall, the solar gain was such that you didn't need the glass houses at all, but they invested a huge amount in them. But the, 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 the second set of those was the inventiveness of horticulturists. These people were scientists, they were vocational scientists. And that, this got me thinking how is it possible that? In Britain and in some other countries, not my native country of Holland, but the, the role of a horticulturist is perceived that you are the third most stupid child or the third most stupid child and will pay you badly. And if you're really lucky, you'll get a job at the National Trust where you get enslaved by being given a house. But when you retire, you haven't got a house. And if you're very, very lucky, some rich hedge fund guy will buy a stately home and you can become a head gardener there. And I was incensed that this was possible. Because when you look at horticulture, when you look at the vegetable garden, the productive gardens at Heligan, and you say to a large audience of people, you say, I now want you to listen to me. For five minutes, I want you to effing well listen to me because I'm going to tell you something that is going to make your jaw drop. Did you know that April, before 1835, April in the big productive gardens of Britain was called the Dying Month? And it was called the dying month because before the age of refrigeration, the genius of the head gardeners was how do you conduct this orchestra of planting, which with both its uh, its sequencing and variety, to give you fresh fruit and vegetables for 365 days a year. And when you start to look at this, you get more and more awestruck at the genius of it. Because, say, when you're talking about fruit, you need to, say, for example, have on a south-facing wall, you need fruit that will ripen early. Those same varieties you may well put on the north-facing wall, but they will fruit and ripen perhaps five, six, seven weeks later. Then you will grow a different variety. you go those that taste really beautiful, and they're plentiful. Uh, and they will actually ripen at the time that the family and at house parties. But then there will be other varieties, which you've got, know, why are they growing these apples? really taste as horrible apples, then when you do the research on it, you discover that, yes, they are horrible and tasteless, but they have a unique capacity, which is that if you put them in straw in a dark room, they can stay edible until even the beginning of April. They're pretty dull, pretty dull, but they'll give you just that little bit of edge of sweetness. So suddenly, when you start to talk to people about the genius of great horticulture, the difference between growing things for storing. Uh, nutrition, for keeping, they're all different things, you know, and what's so amazing today, so there's a reason behind it, A, I wanted to tell you how amazing it is, but the most astonishing thing today, this day, right, we are talking in 2022, and most of the world has said that by 2040, it will have rid itself of fossil fuels, yeah? The most conservative countries in the world have said at the latest they will do it by 2050. What no one has looked at is that the seven most plentiful crops on which humans depend around the world are addicted to fossil fuels. Addicted to fossil fuels. They cannot grow. They actually cannot grow on land that does not have artificial stimulation. I wonder what actually can grow without fossil fuels. They're called heirloom varieties heritage varieties. Then you do a bit more research and you discover something astonishing. The words heirloom and heritage for vegetables and soft fruit were not invented by people like you and me. They were invented by big agriculture wanting to make a distinction between that quaint stuff that is oldy-worldy and the good stuff which is always equally round, equally shiny, equally whatever. So this completely artificial world has been constructed around food, nutrition, the health of nutrition. And to the degree that I have another project, which is um, I'm, I've converted a golf course or half a golf course to becoming a legacy orchard. Um, so i have taking 70 acres to grow heritage fruits, rare fruits, which we've had to propagate over the last and graft over the last five years. The amazing thing is, you may know this, up until 50 years ago, it was true that an apple a day keeps the doctor away. When you look at modern varieties, and you can still get some of those varieties, by the way, but the modern bread varieties, when you look at them, the phenols, which are the really powerful antioxidants that those old varieties have got, are absent and they're replaced with sugar. So an apple a day isn't keeping you healthy. I mean, so this. Vegetable Garden Let's Do Horticulture is a huge huge story. I mean it is it's a monster story about the importance of horticulture and why your role and my role is to champion the importance of it because how primitive is any education system anywhere in the world that does not realize that the very first thing everybody should learn is the importance of the soil because we depend on it and the second thing is how to grow stuff and then the third thing how to eat it and prepare it. It's much more important than knowing the names of the kings and queens of Britain.
0: Yeah, and that's that's very true. And here we have a lot of heritage companies that are collecting seeds, and they're they're really committed. That's all they do. They look for the old seeds that have come over with the Europeans when they arrived. I know there's a, there was a gentleman in Pittsburgh who was looking for the old tomato varieties from the Italian community that lives there, and you know, he he felt that there were a lot of benefits from finding these rare heritage tomatoes. But there's people like that around the country that are doing it because they understand that we do have a fake system of food, yeah. very dependent on, and also we were talking a little bit ago on chemicals, like using Ready Roundup on foods. We're still using Roundup. And we were talking earlier about how they're thinking that maybe that's why people are gluten intolerant why people have ADHD, why people have all kinds of other problems um, because of the chemical dependence that we have on food. But to bring this back to Heligan and to bring this back to the Eden Project, which I believe is changing the world, and I do believe that it's changing the world because anybody who I t- took to Eden couldn't believe what they did in con- the conversion of taking an old clay pit and making it into a productive uh, spectacle for people to see, horticulturally speaking, is beyond words. And I've seen gardens around the world, but nothing like Eden. And I can understand your connection with archaeology. That's really an ancient profession because that's looking at the past. And then you were bringing it into the present, but then you started doing Eden and you're bringing it into the future, present and future. And that whole process is critical for humans to understand that sometimes we actually need to go back to understand where we were and to reposition ourselves to where we want to be in the future.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I don't know whether you know this, but my biggest hero is an American, Buckminster Fuller. Bucky Fuller, not only if you like, designed the original geodesic domes on which Eden was built. But he also wrote a book of such astonishing insight that uh, most of my staff now have a copy. It was written in 1969, but when you read it today, it reads as if it was written today, and it's called An Operating Manual to Spaceship Earth. So we view ourselves as Spaceship Earth, and we want to create circular systems. The future is all about understanding circular systems and doing goods. The reason why I began the conversation about Sadhguru and then talked about Eden is there is a genealogy to the thought process here, which is, hang on, uh, we've been given these incredible gifts uh, within the natural world, and we've been so careless of these gifts that we haven't understood quite how miraculous they are. I don't have the comfort of religion, but I do find the research Two nights ago, I was interviewing um, for an audience in London, a man called Merlin Sheldrake. I don't know if you know Merlin, but he's written a very good book called Entangled Life, uh, all about fungi and mycorrhizal association. And we're living in a time, I mean, I, I hate to say this, Al, but I'm imagining that you might be of an age not too far distant from me. And it may well be that you remember We Are Stardust Yes, Joni um, Mitchell, right? Well, yes. it Kind of hippie wording, but science is catching up with that hippie c- notion of our gut flora and bacteria, which are host to trillions of different bacteria,
0: and the soil, which has got trillions of microbes in it. And then you look at us very,
2: very closely, and you realize we are just part of life. We've got this stuff coming through. You know, if you look at blood and you look at sap under a big micro- microscope, they don't look very different. It's incredibly moving when you get rid of our arrogance, when you get rid of our arrogance. The youngsters who are alive today, I think, well, I would say that our generation is a secular generation by and large. I mean, religion, uh, it still exists, of course, but it doesn't inform every aspect of our life. I think that the young people I know have got a very interesting take on all this They're starting to see a spiritual force in looking at the natural world. And I'm so pleased for them because I think that loneliness of not feeling a sense of meaning or belonging will be replaced by understanding how important nature is. But I do notice it in the young people that I see, although they're probably self-selecting. They come and see me because they're interested. But we talked a lot. We had 50,000 kids come here every year. And they're all really excited about the natural world so i don't think we are doomed i think that our duty is to put together really good stories that let people who maybe don't quite understand it or get something they can put a handle on but for me bucky fuller was just a bloody genius his understanding of the interconnecting systems of of life is something that informed uh, another great friend of mine another american called johnny allen and johnny johnny built with his mates biosphere 2 in arizona
1: Mm.
2: And they've had many years of problems struggling with the Bass family um, over ownership and intellectual property. But it, it's so satisfying to see that this year, 2022, the film called Spaceship Earth, which is about the building of Biosphere 2, won the film of the year at the Sundance Film Festival. And now the whole scientific experiment which they did is being seen for what it was, an incredibly brave Forward-looking approach to trying to measure ecosystems.
0: When when you were talking about uh, Buckminster Fuller and his the idea of the geodesic dome, is that correct? With no. yeah, the geodesic dome, the idea of using those geodesic domes in a place where it can't be used anymore because it's reached its point of, I guess, non-use as far as. Productivity of clay, the removal of clay from a pit, and then you put these geodesic domes in this pit to create life in something that's been scraped of life. I think is is beyond a lot of people's vision.
2: And well, actually, actually you know, you know, the weirdest thing is if you and I said that we would kill ourselves, right? We're going into classrooms all over America. let us We'll choose 100 classrooms. We'll even take Hal. He's got to kill himself as well, right? We're in there, and we're going to talk to people aged between 9 and 13, and we ask them to dream. I'll bet you, I'll bet my life, that in every single classroom, you'll find kids that dream of building mad castles, brilliant dams. That's what humans do. We are an imagineering ape. We're brilliant at that. The problems that we create are to do with the fact that we allow our systems to get clogged up by kind of weird administration, you know, Um, and and therefore we don't go for our shots. And then you get phrases like, uh, politics is the art of the possible. Yeah. Is it the same in America, that phrase? Well, the truth is that most people who say that phrase have got such a lack of imagination that their level of what possible is you think is childish. I can take a bunch of people and say, let's go and build a house, or let's go and clear this beach. You can get enormous things going really quickly. We do the biggest social event in Britain, the Eden Project, which is called Big Lunch, the Big Lunch. I, I
0: was going to ask you about the Big Lunch, and, and how does that work, and what does it do for the Eden Project, and and it's um, it, the whole process of it?
2: Yeah, well, it, this year we had 18 million people participate, And it was officially sanctioned by Her Majesty the Queen for her Platinum Jubilee. But generally, we have between 7 and 10 million doing it a year and have done since 2009. The issue is really simple. How do you get people to get out of their house, lose their shyness, and agree to have lunch with a few other people on their street and introduce themselves? And by creating something called the Big Lunch, you had a word that you could hang it on. To say would you have lunch with me in the middle of the road you're a bit wacky you're a bit crazy i want nothing to do with you would you like to do the big lunch oh that sounds rather fun (laughs) it's about permission
0: permission
2: the lunch it doesn't really matter if it rains or they can't get out in the street or whatever the really important thing is that they went into each other's garages and houses and worked out how they would do a table arrangement and and then everybody sees that everybody's house is a bit messy so many people say it to us. I mean, we're talking millions of people that say it was just so relaxing to realize that we weren't freakily messy or disorganized or not well off or whatever. It's about realizing, that, you know, we're just folks. And actually, we, we pretty much like seeing other folks. We don't have to be friends with them, but we can be good neighbors. And the weirdest thing is that when you recognize the people on your street, crime goes down. People are looking out for you. It's the weirdest thing. Some of the roughest areas in Britain do big lunch, and they dis- they describe extraordinary. The ties that bind of people who've actually just put up a trestle table and you know made some sandwiches are extraordinary. They now live in a neighbourhood rather than a home that is a fortress. Um, as we've developed, we've now got about twenty projects around the world that we're working on. But all our recent projects are ground up, you know, bottom up rather than top down. Because one of the great joys is to go to a place and do the equivalent of a kind of social exorcism. And the first thing you need to do is to persuade the area you're in that good things can come there. You just need to identify how to put things together. And and, in every time, bar none, the secret is introducing people to each other.
0: I remember you saying that it was, at that time, Cornwall was one of the poorest places in Europe. and. You wanted to make it a better place. So now you had already had Helligan, and you had already started to make your inroads as a good neighbor, mm-hmm. reviving this homestead or estate. And it seems like you picked up momentum when you went on to do the Eden Project. You already had a track record for something of success in a community that might not have believed in that success happening. That's another thing that I thought about when I went to the Eden Project. I went to Heligan first and then went to the Eden Project. And I thought to myself, this is amazing. You know, How did somebody have the vision to be able to do something like that? And yes, I know you had said that there was a lot of other people involved, but there has to always be a catalyst. And that catalyst has to be someone who is a connector, which is, okay, I'm going to look to you as a connector. You were able to connect people with people yep. and find people who could do the job of the Eden Project. And that takes a special, I, I want to say, a catalyst having a chemical reaction with other people to make them want to do the project.
2: Yes. Well, the honest answer to what you just said is yes, I am that person. I am a connector and I am the best at one thing. I have never met anyone even close to being as good as me at making other people believe in themselves. That's what I do. And the, the real secret, it, it comes in two parts. You need to understand one thing that is in common with most people. Most people have inside them a grain like a coffee bean called disappointment. It doesn't matter how happy they are in general, but they've got this little coffee bean of disappointment, which is how their dreams for the person they wanted to be have fallen short on what they'd hoped now the problem with an awful lot of people who are very good is that they don't understand human beings and they want to do little small projects they want to do let's do something really small in the community yeah great boring yeah most people want to be want to be involved in a great great project therefore the skill of a great project is to divide it up so it becomes like a stage on which an enormous amount of people can take a bit of time in the limelight.
0: And that moment, that
2: place, becomes a place where they rediscover the person they dreamt they could be when they were 19. You may have once hoped to be a world-class footballer and been disappointed in your life, but when you're suddenly working in a place and the boss person treats you as if you're an equal and you get famous people coming there and then they treat you like a people a person and it's in the television and it's getting written about in newspapers and you're part of that thing you know it's just very cool there's the mix of making sure you dare to dream big enough most people don't dare to be big enough because they don't understand that the secret of connection is that the big thing is a is a series of interlocking small chains that makes a big thing the second technique is death The thing that no one expects is when you start talking to them about how sorry you feel for them, because the route they're going is like the guy who turned down the Beatles because guitar bands aren't going to catch on. You watch how some people will start to give you money when you say, God, I'm sorry for your grandchildren. They're going to have to live with the fact that you didn't have the vision to see how great this could be.
0: And that's why you were so successful in the music world, because people who were musicians
2: Are lifted by someone like you. Okay. okay. But my success, I'm a conductor. The thing that turns me on is seeing other talented people and knowing the reason they are not successful yet is because they haven't met all the right people. And I can put them in a, call it a choir, but that's a musical analogy. It's life affirming when you see how clever humans can be when they collaborate
0: and and i think that that collaboration has led to your success at eden project's success to be international and doing what it's doing creating these places around the world i mean not too many people can say in 20 years time this is what has been created by an organization such as the eden project being able to go in and talk to the communities and say we would like to take this land that's been abused and rehabilitate it and make it into something that everyone here in this community can use. It takes vision.
2: My idea of success, the the happiest I have been was a newspaper headline in Britain, and its headline said, Our Eden Project. Mm. I can't tell you how cool that feels. I don't want people to say how cool Tim Smith is. This isn't like an Oscar speech where I'd like to thank my mom, my dog. It's not like that. My thrill is in seeing that look on people's faces when they realize, crikey, we're capable of this stuff. And the more you focus on a hero person, the less you liberate everybody else.
0: Well, I really appreciate you being on our podcast and giving us the background behind how Eden began I hope that our listeners go to the Eden Project website and take a look around and see what this organization is doing. It is just incredible. And I know when you're saying we, because as a as a professor, I always feel that my job is the most rewarding when my students are successful.
2: That's well, marvelous. I think we're addicted to the same things which is actually the sheer joy of watching talent revealed and nurtured.
0: And it benefits the globe and getting back to our trees, the idea that the planet needs us as humans.
2: What a pleasure talking to you and and, and, and you, I mean, We haven't had much chance to chat, but I hope all your listeners, actually, I hope their main takeout is, yes, do see the Eden website and come. But the biggest takeout I hope for is that you look around where you live and you think, what adventures could we all have together that would actually do something that would make everybody smile a lot? And it's so exciting when people come together to do marvelous things. So I shall say goodbye. Thank you. And look forward to our paths crossing again.
0: Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Tim. Bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.